God, mighty and majestic, you who sit on a throne that is high and lifted up, what a privilege to come before you. Thank you that as our words come up to you, you will hear. That's your promise. Fills our hearts with so much of assurance, dear Father. We want you to be here through your spirit. We want you to guide our minds so that we can look into your word, find what it says, let it wend its way deep into our hearts and into our lives. We give ourselves to you for this time. Please teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know what the meaning of euangelion is? It's a Greek word. And the Greek word means good news. It was a Greek word that was used by the people of Greek, Greece long before the time of Christ, centuries before he was born. But it was not very commonly used. In fact, it was used in very specific and special circumstances. This was the word that the writers used when they wanted to describe the life and the teachings of Jesus. They used the word euanglion, good news. But the word good news, just, just plain good news. There was something else attached to the good news, and that is why it was used very rarely. One of the reasons why was because it very rarely happened that somebody would just jump up and say, Euangelion! Because Euangelion is not used when you were expecting a B in your test and you got a B plus. Well, that's good news. But that's not Euangelion. Euangelion is when, for instance, you were so tired the night before and when you went to write the test, it was just tough. You did not even understand the questions. And then you wrote whatever you could, gave the paper in, and then sat back in your room and wondered, what is going to happen? And as you thought about it, you realized, most probably, failure, F. And with that F would go your scholarship. And with that F also, probably your professor would say, please step out of the course. That's too low a grade. And then two days later, your teacher comes and hands you your grades. And there, boldly, is your grade A plus. Then you say, you angle on. Are you with me? 
That was how they used the word in those days. Let me give you another example of how they used it in those times, in the times of the Greeks. If you were a little kingdom and had a small army, ill-equipped, not really trained like the others, and then you had an enemy come to attack, and the enemy was superior, number-wise, equipment-wise, training-wise, much bigger than your little bitty army. You scratched your head and said, boy, now this is going to be horrible. The only realistic ex expectation at that time would be total defeat, plunder, rape, torture, death. But then the watchman on the wall, he looks over and sees a runner from the battlefield bringing some good news. And from a distance, he's pointing out, victory! Boy, could it be that our little army defeated that big superior army? Can't believe it. So let's wait till he comes a little closer, really see how his hands moved. And he came a little closer, and he's showing victory. Still can't believe it. Let him come here to where I am and tell me that we really won. And he comes back breathless. He said, we won. Wow. Euanglion. And that name and that word is spent, sent throughout the length and breadth of the country, transforming despair and impending doom to the heights of triumphant celebration. That is Euanglion. Why did the writers use this word? Why are we not willing to shout out euanglion? Because I think we've missed out the fact that euanglion has two parts. Euanglion is not just good news. Euanglion is good news in the face of utter despair. That is what makes it euanglion. Not just good news. In other words, if that news did not come, it was complete, total devastation and ruin. And in the midst of that ruin came this news, which changed the whole picture to, to joy and celebrations. That is what is called euanglion. And sometimes I believe we have missed out on euanglion and just talked about good news because we have not understood part number one. What is that initial condition? Because only the initial condition will give you a picture of what the news is, and they are so far apart that that is what gives it that exquisite touch called Euanglion. So tonight, we are used to good news. We like to talk about gospel, good news. Tonight, we're going to talk about that first part. What is it that actually makes it not just good news, but Euanglion? And it is a description of that initial condition. What is that initial condition? It has two parts to it, the initial condition itself. Number one, it is universal. 
Turn with me to Romans, the third chapter. And if you keep your finger around about Romans, we'll be going around that place for a little while. But of course, we'll go to other verses as well. But here is Romans, the third chapter. Romans, the third chapter. Romans 3 and verse 10, 11, and 12. As it is written, there is, how many you understand? None. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. No, not one. From there till there, not one. That's what it says. Number two, it is not only universal, it is utterly hopeless. Because this thing called the fall produced a change in the human race that penetrates right to the heart of ourselves. Turn to Jeremiah, the 17th chapter. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart, are you there? Yes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? So which part is desperately wicked? The heart. In other words, the source of the fountain is muddy, dirty. So what will the fountain be like if the source is dirty? If the heart has been twisted and turned inwards, if the heart has been corrupt, then everything that comes out is corrupt. That's exactly what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. You know, to this evening is going to be kind of a Bible study, so we're going to go from one text to the other. So come along with me. Isaiah 64 and verse 6, we are all like an unclean thing. How many of us? All. And how much of our righteousness? All our righteousness are like filthy rags. That's the best we can do. It's not all our dirty things are like filthy rags. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. Because the, everything has penetrated to the heart of it. Not only has it soaked through and through, not only is it our best so filthy, how much can we do about it? Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do what? Evil. So we could wear some good embroidered clothes and a three-piece suit and come all neatly dressed, but we are corrupt through and through. That's what the book says. Not only do we not know what to do, 
we think we do it so well. It's called deception. Turn to Romans, the seventh chapter, the eleventh verse. Romans 7 and verse 11, and it says here, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, did what? Deceived me. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So not only has it gone deep inside, not only does it stop us from doing what is correct, not only are we unable to do anything, we are deceived. We think we have got it all. What, we, what is supposed to be described as unacceptable, we just grab and welcome into ourselves. We are utterly deceived. We do not know what to do. We don't know how to do it. And we think we're doing it all correctly. And then, let's just put it aside and say, hey, why don't we just try to just get back to paradise again? But getting back to paradise requires kind of some criteria. Criteria number one, you've got to pay for what you did. Then you can come into paradise. So what's the payment for what you've done so far? Yeah. Romans. 6, verse 23. You can say it, actually. I've turned to it. For the what of what? Wages of sin is? Death. So let's try to get back to paradise. First we'll pay, and then we'll get back. Hey, but when you pay, you can't get back. Because the payment is life. Once, so let's say we paid and we got back there or at least try to get back there. What we now need to do is really always conform to the law completely, because it's paradise. So how can we do that when our hearts are really corrupt? Or everything that we do is like filthy rags. So all we can really, really do is add debt to debt, and to that debt, we do another thing and become another debt. And each debt is a death. So one death added to another death to another ad infinitum. Now think about it. We can't do anything about it. It's gone clear through to the heart. And we think we're doing fine. We can't get to the paradise because we can't pay. Because if we pay, we can't do anything because we're dead if we pay. Can you see that this is actually a hopeless case? But why don't we all agree that it is hopeless? We still walk around like we are something and somebody. Don't we? Yes, especially if you are S-D-A. Am I speaking to S? D is? Yes. We don't bother about this. We think, you know, we've got it. But remember, 
you cannot get to the second part of Yuga Leon, which is the good news, unless you know the condition. God wants to teach us tonight that there's a first step. So how is he going to teach us? Do you know he's always been trying to teach us for a long, long time? Like from way back in Sinai. What happened at Sinai? He came down in thunder and lightning, the sound of a trumpet. He gave us his law. It's also called his covenant, also called his commandment, and we, in short, call it a decalogue. Wow, nice name. Kind of give you a good feeling, you know, decalogue. And we are the ones who are guardians of the decalogue. But that decalogue, why was it given? You know, most people, when they see the decalogue or hear about the decalogue, there are two responses. Response one, number one is, ah, who cares about it? Doesn't apply to me. I don't care. Who's God? I don't know. I don't want that. Don't talk to me about that at all. The other response is, hey, God has given us the Decalogue. Why don't we just kind of keep up to it and then we can go, God, <clears throat> kept to it, you know, a little bit. Some, some credit. Can I have some credit? So we relate to it as if we can keep it so that when we keep it, then we can get approved of God. That is the way we want to do it. But look, God gave them that, that, that decalogue, that command, that covenant, that law for four reasons. We're going to look at one. James 1.23 says, or describe that law as what? A mirror. mirror. Somebody said it. Yes, you can go ahead and turn to it. It says, it's a mirror. What does a mirror do? Oh, it shows you who you are. And here are two normal or usual responses to this mirror. You go and look in the mirror. Hey, boy, there's a spot over there. Huh. The problem is there. So get some little paint. Paint the mirror. Mm, now I'm okay. Hey, another spot out there. Hey, some more paint. Mm, put it up there. Mm, okay. Fine, I'm good. Oh boy, there's a big patch out here. That paint won't do it. So just cut out that part of the mirror and pass it away. Now I'm fine. Some people do that, you know that? Yes, some people do that. In fact, most of the people do that. The problem is the mirror. So paint it up, break it up, toss some people aside, some pieces here and there, and then stand before it and say, I'm fine. But there's another group, small, minority, who says, no way. Don't touch the mirror. That is God's mirror. Scrub some water, some soap. Don't put any marks on it. Scrub it. And when you come to that place, hey, there's a deficiency here. 
Where's the piece? Oh, down there. Bring that piece also and put it back there. Put the pieces back there. Don't make any marks on it. Scrub, 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 scrub. Do you know the people? Recognize those people? Uh-huh. We are repairers of the breach. We clean up. We are the guardians. So we are scrubbing away. And then when it's all finished, we pick that mirror and show it to everybody else. Uh, will you look at it? Not on your life. That's not my job. My job is to clean it. Show. So you won't look into it? Why should I look into it? I am rich. Increased with goods. Have need of nothing. I am the repairer of the breach. I will clean it up. And I will stand as guardian to it. And I will show it to you. I don't need to look into it. Are you with me? Friends, it is time to find out why God gave it to you. Yes, good thing. Stand there and clean it. Good. Put those pieces back. Good. Call yourself a repairer of the breach. Good. But don't miss out on the fundamental. You got to look at it yourself. Don't stand there and say, am I not doing a good job cleaning it up? That's what we do. We want everybody else to salute us. We're doing a good job. Man, don't touch. This is Jehovah's law. Do you know that? No. There must be a time and a way in which we relate to it correctly. The way in which we will understand where, what euangelion really is. Because when you look into it, God did not give the law primarily so that we could polish it. He did not give it to us so that we could fix it up. He did not give it us so that we could get a deficiency that the other people made and fix it. He gave it for one reason. Actually four, like I said, but here's one. We think we're going to do well if we do what, we have, what I have just described. But God wants us to look at it and recognize one simple, clear-cut thing. You are morally bankrupt. That's it. And no matter what you do, you can't do anything except be bankrupt. But that's all. You can, you can, you can, you know, like dress up and come here. But unless you recognize that the job of that law has not begun in you. Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans 5 and verse 20 said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Oh, I thought the law came to make me look good, that I can keep it and I can tell everybody how nice I am. No, sir. The law entered that the offense might abound. Romans 7th chapter and the 13th verse. I thought it was a great big thing, you know, this law. Yes, it is. But let's go to the first step. Has then what is good become death to me? 
talking about the law, certainly not. The law is not death. But sin is what is death. But look at what it says after that. That it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The commandment was not made to make you look good. The commandment was given so that you will know how totally morally bankrupt and sinful you are. Hmm, boy. But really, it's a relief. Because God knows me. In other words, God is saying, I know you. You're just dust. And if you acknowledge what I said, in what I've given you, well, then the next part can really work with you. But my question tonight is, is this really what God wants us to have? Is this what he has shown in the lives of the people in the Bible? Let's look at two examples. Book of Job in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. Let's go to Job. Let me just pick out this verse here. Job 23. One character in the Old Testament and one character in the New Testament. Job chapter 23. 10, 11 and 12. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth how? as gold. And how many of us say, wow, hey, that's what we're supposed to do, right? He must test us and will come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And in uh, Job 27, just across the page, Five and six. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. You see, Job's friends were saying, Job, I think there's something wrong with you. So Job is replying, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Yep, I'm on God's side, you know. S-D-A, Job. Then God talked to him. Didn't he? He asked him some questions. And when he finished asking those questions, Job 40, verse 4 and 5. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. But God was not finished. Some more questions. And then finally in chapter 42, verse 5 and 6, the words of Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, 
Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happened to all his righteousness? That he was not going to leave at all. That he was not going to let go. We require this. Because after the fifth and sixth verse of Job 42 comes number 12 verse. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. If you go to the beginning of Job, you'll find that this is double what he had. Hey, double. But double to the one who recognizes his correct condition. How many of us praise him for saying, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him? Fine. But even this one who was so strong in his faith in God was actually deficient badly. God had to show him. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to do a little digression and just mention a little bit about one of the questions that Job, God asked Job. Now, this is not in the lesson, just astronomy. One of the questions God asked Job was, can you guide Arcturus, or the bear? Isn't that one of his questions? Yeah, it's found in 38 verse 22 or something. Can you guide Arcturus? Do you know the, the star Arcturus? It's a part of our galaxy. And galaxy, these celestial bodies, when they move, they can affect the movement of other celestial bodies. How? By their mass and by their speed. So it's like you traveling in a bitty little you know, two-seater car going at 20 miles an hour. And just beside you comes an 18-wheeler going at 150 miles an hour. Well, we'll spin you around. That's what happens out there in space, too. So a big body that is moving moves the others. The bittier bodies don't move the big bodies. The big ones move the bitty ones. And the faster you go, the more effect you have on the others, and the less effect the others have on you. All right? Got that? God is asking, can you guide Arcturus? The mass of Arcturus is more than 27 times that of our sun. And it's traveling at 150 miles per second. Our sun and our uh, solar system is traveling at only 20 miles per second. So have I given you an idea that Arcturus is big? And it's traveling at about seven times the speed of our sun. So who, which is going to move which? That's one. But it really gets more interesting. Because all the stars in our galaxy move along the same plane around the center of the galaxy. This is the direction, for instance. No star moves any other way. All the 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy move this way. Do you know Arcturus is the only star that's moving this way? It is the only star that could possibly leave our galaxy at some point. Every other star is going this way. This big, rapidly moving one is going this way. And that's the one God says, can you guide that fellow? 
Yep. And that's why Job said, boy, oh boy, I, I spoke too much. Before you, I am nothing. Example number two from the New Testament, that intrepid warrior for Christ. Who was he? Paul. Galatians 1. Galatians 1 and verse 1. Do you know that Galatians is just about the first book that was written of the New Testament? It's not the, it's not the Gospels. Galatians was the first book that was written. And Paul writes this in the first verse of the first chapter. He's establishing himself. Paul an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Please listen. I am also an apostle, but not an ordinary apostle. Not laying on of ordinary human hands. I have been chosen by God and by Jesus. Wow. So listen. Listen to me. That's what he was saying. I'm one of you. But that's his first letter. A few years later, he writes another letter. 1 Corinthians. Fifteen and verse nine. For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul begins like sitting here, you know, like me. Here, listen to me. And then usually in some churches we have people sitting in front. You know. And he, next letter he says, no, no. I, I, I can't take the pulpit. I'll sit on the front row. Not up here. Because I'm the least of the apostles. A few years went by. Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. 3. And verse 8. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, was this grace given that I, of all people, should be able to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, what's happening to him? From the pulpit, he stepped down to the front row, and after a little while, he got up from there and went to the back row. Are you following? Yes. This is his real life. He stopped. He got down from the pulpit, walked down to the front row, and then from there he said, no, not even front row, back row. Towards the end of his life, 1 Timothy.
chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Say, sinners, not apostles, not a part of the leadership. He came to save sinners of whom I am chief. First, a great big apostle who must take the pulpit. Then he steps down and goes to the front row, no longer at the pulpit. Then he goes to the back seat. And finally, when he realizes who his God is, he leaves and goes outside. He is not worthy to be inside the tent. That is the way God works with us. Nobody standing before God will ever be anything but humble. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, if this is not our experience, we are headed the wrong way. Don't puff up your chest, my friends, ever. We do not have the truth of God. We know where the truth resides. We don't have it. Our job is not to say, come here, I'll tell you, because we've got the truth. No, our job is to say, come here, I will show you where it is. We are the way marks. We are not the destination. You know, when you realize this, it really takes a load off you. You're not the one who is scrutinized. Let them scrutinize him. <laughs> he can stand scrutiny. None of us can. You know, when I realized this, I still remember. I used to think it was very romantic to say I was a sinner, you know. Stand up and say, oh, you know, I'm a great sinner. I've done so many bad things. And sometimes I'm kind of proud of those bad things. But when you really come before God, shut your mouth. Romans 3.19. This is the way some people read it. Romans 3.19. We're coming almost to the end. And let's see if you can identify yourself in the way I'm going to read it. Romans 3 and verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that, how much? Every mouth may be stopped, and all the world except SDAs may become guilty before God. <laughs> really? We read it that way. Everybody else is guilty, not we. We, we are the guardians of the law, you know, repairers of the breach. All those poor guys out there, they need to be taught something. And we've got to go and teach them. If we don't go and teach them, oh, poor souls, they'll die. Look, friends, if you don't go, it is not that they will die. You might not live. But, you know, when you get to that point where you're down, I want you to think. So I'm not going to call for a 
commitment. Because this is kind of sober. Romans, the seventh chapter and the tenth verse says something very different from how we usually look at the law. We say, wow, we are keepers of the law. We've got to hold on to it. And of course we should. Because unless you clean the mirror, you can't see what's in the mirror. You've got to clean it. But this thing which we thought would give us life is, can actually bring death. Why do we need to die? Think about it. So, you know, who went to Jesus one night? It was a Pharisee. What's his name? Nicodemus. He went to Jesus at night. I'm asking ourselves, you and me, can we go to Jesus tonight, in the night, and ask him, Rabbi, what about me? And you know what he will tell you? The same thing he told Nicodemus. You must be... Can you be born again without dying? So before the new birth, there must be a death. God has given us only one way in which you will die. Look at that Ten Commandments and see if you can follow it. Look at that mirror. You will die. You have just no other chance. There's nothing else you can do except simply shrivel up before it and die. But that's not the end. Because Jesus said, die and then you come up. Romans, the sixth chapter, and that's the last one for tonight. Romans 6 and verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, which we should be, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We will never understand the truth of the resurrection without a death. We will never understand Euangelion unless we understand the circumstances in which the news came. Tonight, we saw the first part. And I'm not calling for any commitment. I'm only asking you to think. Go to Jesus tonight like Nicodemus went and think of what he will tell you. You must be born again. Find out whether that being born must be preceded by a death. But tomorrow, we're going to look at the next part. If we understood this part tonight and honestly went through it tonight and do it, my friends, tonight, look at it and find out where you stand. Then when we speak tomorrow, we'll do the second part. So the good news will become not just good news, but euangelion. And then I will call for a commitment. How can you commit to this alone? Commit to this in a way that you will be honest about what God says about us about me as an individual, and about us as a people. And then we will be ready for another news tomorrow morning. Shall we learn how to be humble? Let's pray.
God, you know us through and through. There's no use trying to put on a false front. We do not want to do that in front of you. Teach us what you really know about us. And as we've heard these words, let them sink in. Maybe not go to the right or to the left, but go to only that one place where we can find forgiveness. Because you told us that no matter what our condition, if we just come to you, it's for, forgiveness is full and free. Thank you for this chance. But teach us tonight to be on our knees and to understand what you really mean when you talk to us about this law. And no matter how beautiful and strong and great it is, let us submit ourselves and be humble before you and this law and before Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.